0: All right. I am going to uh, invite you, if you are in the uh, foyer, to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. And we will continue with our teaching time uh, together here this morning. Um, How many of you have seen the movie Hidden Figures that came out? Uh, Okay, a number of you. So the movie, the concept behind the movie is a number of women working in Nassau uh, in significant ways, but under-recognized and not noticed because they were kind of just a little bit out of the limelight in that kind of a culture. And so here at Jericho, we are launching into a new series this morning, uh, which we're just stealing the title blatantly from that movie, Hidden Figures. And uh, we're going to do eight weeks. And if you look in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 1 there's a listing of Jesus' uh, genealogy, his ancestors. And one of the fascinating things in that passage is how many women are listed. And how many women that are listed that maybe, even in the first century, people would have read that and gone, that should not be in there. Whoa, 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 that person, we need to talk about that. Uh, And so for us at Jericho we want to uh, go through Matthew chapter 1 and look at each of those significant women in Jesus' life and in Jesus' lineage as we move through uh, this Lent season. And part of this is driven around our conviction here at Jericho that we had a conversation in 2009 as a community and uh, came to a consensus and a conviction around uh, the place of women in ministry leadership at Jericho Ridge. And so our conviction was driven by prayer and by scripture and by discerning that together. Uh, and at Jericho, we believe that God gifts and equips men and women equally, and uh, we have uh, positions open to both men and women at all levels uh, here in our community. And so we've lived this out since 2009, and uh, sometimes one of the ways that that we don't as often live this out is by having women uh, come and preach and share from God's Word for us. And so over the next eight weeks, you're going to be hearing Eight women in a row talk about the stories of these eight women and lifting up uh, from Matthew chapter 1 our values and our convictions around how God gifts and equips people for ministry. And so to start us off, uh, we have a friend, Rachel. Uh, Rachel is from Camp Bob. Rachel Schwartz. she's a theology student at Ambrose University in Calgary. And it's been a joy and privilege to get to know Rachel over the last number of years as we've spent time uh, at camp. And uh, Rachel is a person of deep passion, deep conviction, and loves to study God's Word. And uh, so she is going to come and uh, launch off our series this morning with the first woman listed in Matthew chapter 1, a woman by the name of Tamar. So Rachel, will you come and we'll pray for you. God, we are grateful for all of your good gifts to your church. And you have given uh, Rachel gifts of leadership. You've given her um, a a quick mind to study. You've given her uh, many, many gifts. And we pray that as she uses those gifts here in this place today and also at camp in the summer, and as she works to get camp ready for the summer, as she's interning uh, this season God, would you um, uniquely use the gifts that you've given to her to accomplish the purposes that you have in your heart and in your mind, both here in this place, in the lives of all those who will come uh, under her leadership at camp and and beyond as she continues in her studies and whatever the path that you will lead her on beyond that. And so we thank you in the wonderful and strong name of Jesus. Amen.
1: All right. Oh, I'm on. I can hear it. Thank you so much for having me here everybody. I'm really excited to be here. This is a this is a great opportunity. I'm really thankful to Brad and Meg who have hosted me over today yesterday and today. I'm going to start off with just a little bit about myself. So you'll see some pictures up there. On the top left, you have me and my four brothers. Their names all start with J. I'm not going to bore you with it. And it's confusing for me, let alone for all of you. So we'll just leave it at that. But that's those Those are them. I come from a big family and we love each other in the messy way that families do love each other. Um, the picture up beside it is me up at camp doing very campy things, uh, dressing up like Christmas in August in the 30 degree sweltering heat. is just, I don't know that there's anywhere else that you do that sort of weird stuff than camp. So that's that. Um, the bottom left is me, myself, and the program director at Camp Bob Benge, And that is, that is a more accurate representation of what daily life at Camp Bob looks like. We are up at the front. We're telling people what to do and trying to make sure that everybody has the maximum amount of fun at every single time. And then on the bottom right I just, I love the outdoors, I love hiking, that's a big part of my life, living on the island is so amazing. I'm really grateful to to have been born there and have some of the opportunities to experience the great outdoors. That is not on the island, that's in uh, Yoho National Park, but I don't remember where, it was it was a good time. Just wanted to give you a little feel for who I am as we go into this morning. Another thing that I love from my childhood is VeggieTales. Anybody Anybody experience VeggieTales? Yes. You know, does anybody remember that veggie Tale story in which uh, God kills Judah's two sons, forcing Judah's daughter-in-law Tamar to disguise herself, and then Judah goes and has sex with her, and then she gets pregnant. Do you remember that? Veggie? They Surely they must have used that story. They must have. Like, there's it, it's just, there's so much possibility there for vegetables, I don't know. <laughs> it's probably one of the least G-rated stories in the Bible, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be great. Tamar is, um, the story of Tamar, and then by association, the story of Judah, is a big deal. It shows up in Matthew. It shows up multiple other places in the Old Testament, and it's a story, very unorthodox story, that's going to make us probably a little bit uncomfortable. I was deeply uncomfortable as I prepared for this sermon, so it's going to be good. There's a lot that gets left unsaid in this story and there's a lot that we can't see because we're so far removed from the context in which this story happens. So because of the ambiguity, there's a lot of different ways that the story has been understood. Um, even the story is t- commonly known like Tamar the prostitute is how this story is often known. She's depicted as this salacious woman who's going out and acting like a prostitute and is getting, you know, getting what she needs out of this encounter. And I think what we're going to find as we dig into a little bit of the context in the story leading up to this point, that there's probably more at play here than just giving her the label of prostitute. Often this word can color our perception. You know, as soon as you hear the word prostitute, it's really hard to shake some of the connotations that we have with a word like that. I'm really excited you guys are doing this sermon series. It makes me excited. I'm going to listen to all the other podcasts from this series because it's something that we don't talk about in church very often. And I think that um, Brad's just been sharing with you your guys' heart and the way that you guys participate in like local and global missions and your heart for the marginalized and bringing people in. And hearing these stories, I think, is really going to like just aid you guys in being able to fulfill that mission in your church better. Um, So, uh, something that we need to talk about in order to talk about the story of Tamar is the cultural backdrop of the Bible, which is patriarchy. Now, that word can be a big buzzword for people. A lot of people like to just throw it out as the root cause and problem for everything. And while it is kind of the root cause and problem for what we're talking about today, I do want to give a little bit of clarity there. What I mean when I say that word is I mean the elevation of men over women and so while we live in changing and exciting times right now at the time that this story was both occurred and then was recorded and even when the all of scripture was canonized it's really only recently that we've been looking through systems of patriarchy and and like you as a church having that conversation in 2009 being like you know what we believe that god actually has gifted men and women equally and made both in the image of God. And so we're working today from a text that has the assumption of patriarchy, the assumption that men are elevated over women. And this is a, a this is a fallen cultural backdrop that's being challenged all the time by the biblical narrative itself texts like this one that we're looking at today can be really messy, and they're often ones around women in the Bible can be used to wound people. I don't know if all of you have had this experience, but there have been different times where um, I've been compared to women in the Bible, but not in the best way not for their courageous qualities and for their you know their their participation in the mission of god but because they were too loud or because they should be quiet or because there's a lot of there's a lot of politics that can happen around these passages and so um, it can be really tempting to want to ignore them altogether and just check the whole thing out but i think we're going to find something Pretty interesting as we look at it today. And this is where I want to include a little bit of a warning of sorts, like a trigger warning, essentially. We're talking about sexual violence today. Tamar's story is messy, um, and it's. Um, if you're sitting here this morning and, and you are, have experienced um, use and abuse at the hands of another person, just want to put this out there, the staff at Jericho Ridge Church are committed to walking alongside you in whatever capacity you need. They can hook you up with resources and they want to talk to you. So if this brings up anything for you and you need help in any way, do not hesitate. They're amazing people. So that being said, we're going to get into it. So even though Tamar is often labeled a prostitute, I think uh, I'm hoping to bring out another element of what covenant relationship with God looks like here in Tamar's story today. In order to do that, we need to go back. And this is a lot of people. Don't worry, we don't need to focus on all of them. We are going to focus on the line of blue people that starts at the top where it meets up with the line of green people. Everybody else you can ignore. It looks like a lot, it's not, not that much. So Abraham, we got to go all the way back to there to understand who Judah is and where he's coming from. Abraham is the guy at the very top. He has two sons. He has Ishmael on the far right at the top with his uh, wife's slave, Hagar, which is a whole nother story about Biblical women that we're not going to go into today. And then he has a son, Isaac, with his wife, Sarah. Isaac um, Isaac makes a family with Rebecca, who gives birth to Jacob and Esau. Jacob works f- flees his family, works 14 years to work in exchange for Leah and Rachel, who come with their maid's servants, Zilpah, another word for that is slaves, Zilpah and Bilhah, together the four women give birth to 12 sons and a daughter, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12, 12 dudes is where we get a lot of different language that we have through the Bible to understand who God is and the promise of God through all of, all of history. So Judah is one of Jacob's 12 sons. He's the green one in the row there. Judah's behavior and character, this is gonna, I think, stay up for a little bit, so you'll kind of you can keep looking at it, get your mind wrapped around it. Judah's behavior and character is the subject of the chapter right before Genesis chapter 38. So we're going through Genesis chapter 38 this morning. If you want to read along, you're welcome to do it. Because it's a narrative and it's a story. I'm just gonna tell it like a narrative and a story. If you have your Bible in front of you, you'll be able to follow along with what's what's happening, but I'm not gonna reference specific verses because we're gonna talk more about what's happening in the story than in any specific verse, okay so in the chapter beforehand it's Judah's character um, that is kind of coming out a little bit Judah and we're, this chapter is stuck right in the middle of the Joseph narrative so the story of Joseph where he's the he's the purple one in that line of the 12 tribes, he's the favored brother. Judah is the one who orchestrates him being sold into slavery in Egypt. So essentially, Judah has human trafficked his brother for profit, Um, and after that, he leaves his family, he continues with some interesting and kind of questionable behavior, and moves far away and marries a Canaanite woman, which means that he marries somebody who is an outsider to the people of Israel. He marries outside of his clan, which for us is like, no big deal. For them, it was like, this is devastating, this is the end of all things, like, we have to keep Israel pure, we have to follow God in this way, and part of that means we only marry specific people. Um but it's very different. very different time. He's doing exactly what his relatives warned against. He's kind of showing with his actions everything from the way that he treats his brother, splitting up his family, and going after a Canaanite woman. He's showing a lack of concern for the larger promise of God to Israel, which was, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless all the nations through you, and you need to live a certain way so that you can manage that blessing well. He's not really following through on that part of the promise at this point in time. So to continue on from there, Judah has three sons, which actually aren't shown on this diagram, but they'll show on another one. Er, Onan, and Shelah. And Tamar, who is our heroine of this biblical text, she enters this story as the Canaanite woman that Judah has procured for his oldest son, er. Okay, So she first comes into the story as Er's wife. So this is where I want to go a little bit deeper into the idea of where patriarchy really influences how we read this narrative in three very specific ways. Without understanding these three things, we're going to miss part of the story, and it's easy to read the story at face value, and you would have no idea that these things were happening or why they were happening. Okay, so the first one is the the pretty broad, this is pretty standard of any patriarchal context. Females in this story are being deprived of legal rights and agency, which is the ability to make their own choices, and they are expected to submit to the men to whom they belong. In this story, Judah holds life and death power over Tamar, and can even order for her to be killed. Number two, other men are deprived of rights. Patriarchy does not just harm women, it also harms men in this story. In the way that the oldest, it creates a hierarchy among brothers in a family. So if there's the father, that's like, that's the that's the head honcho. And then if he's got three sons, like Judah did, heir holds the majority of the power of those sons. So the majority of the father's assets go to the firstborn to the eldest, leaving the other two at a disadvantage. And number three, a woman's only goal in life is to produce sons, so that the system of the oldest male can continue, continue, continue. This is the only way that women in this context had value, and there was even a phrase at the time, which was to die without a male descendant was to be erased from history. Like you, you just weren't on the map if you could not produce sons for your family. So many people because this is something that you don't necessarily know going into reading the text yourself. A lot of people have uh, misinterpreted Tamar's actions in this passage as her personal obsession to have kids. You know, she just, she was just, you know, she needed to have sex so badly that she needed to go after Judah. She needed to do this thing so badly because of herself. And I think what we're going to see is that there's, all of these cultural factors that are kind of lost on us because we don't think like this today. But this is this is the reality of her story at the time, and anybody reading this, this would have been their reality as well. Tamar is also an outsider in the family. So like I said, she's also a Canaanite. So it shows kind of Judah's interests where he's marrying outside of his family. But even early hearers and readers of this story, hearing that she was an outsider, a Canaanite, that would have been alarm bell number one before you even heard the term prostitute, so outsider was like again for us, it's like what is the big deal and for them it's this is everything this is this is life and death, this is the promise of God, are we living right? are we not uh regardless of this again judah Judah gives Tamar to his eldest son as a wife, and then heir dies like, (laughs) right away in the story, and we don't even get told why. Um, We are just, we're just, like, why? And it just says that God thought he was wicked, and so he died. Like, all right, okay, that's all we've got to go on. But it's important to note that God is the one that kills air in this story that's a whole other theological topic for a whole other time. But we're just going to stick with this story for this morning. Brad, that's all you, man. (laughs) So, air dies, which is a problem. And then if you can see, the next son after air is Onan on the right-hand side there. And there's a dotted line that leads over to Tamar. And it says, it's kind of fuzzy, it says Leveret. And here's another ancient contextual thing that we would have no idea about unless we did a little bit of digging into it, and this is something called Leveret Marriage. So this is a ancient cultural custom in which when the oldest son dies, the next one in line is required to marry the older son's wife and then have kids with her so that the line of the older son can continue and so that the wife will be cared for. Because if you'll remember, a widow in this context isn't going to be cared for. She doesn't have sons to take care of her. She doesn't have a husband to take care of her. She's essentially worthless to people at this point in time. And this type of cultural practice this was it was twofold. First of all, because it would continue the patriarchy system of keep that oldest brother's line in place and keep having children, but it was also a way to hold um, men accountable to caring for the vulnerable in their midst. Leveret marriage, kind of icky to us, like not really interested in being a part of in part of a situation like that at any point in time in my life. But this was pretty common for them at the time. Okay. So here, when this occurs, when heir when er dies, we have this concept of leveret marriage, which Judah knows about. He knows what his obligations are, and he knows what the obligations of his oldest son are, but he doesn't follow through with it. And we see Tamar uh, experience the character of Judah once again, which is often these often Judah's hailed as this, like, the great patriarch of the faith, and we need to look up to him in every way. And I'm not saying that there aren't ways in which he absolutely honors God and does the right thing, but like every single other one of us, just a human, still makes mistakes, still able to be used by God, but in this story, so far. (laughs) He cheats Tamar out of this leveret marriage. So instead of... Instead of saying, okay, Onan, you're up, you're going to marry Tamar, you're going to have kids with her, take care of her, fulfill this custom, he goes halfway. He tells Onan, you don't have to marry her, like you don't have to actually care for her, just have kids with her, so that heir's line will continue. He expresses very little concern for Tamar, who has, at this point in time, no means of support. So, moving on with the story. Onan goes to Tamar, doesn't marry her, has sex with her, and then does, practices an ancient form of birth control called pulling out, in which he destroys his seed on the ground. So he goes to Tamar multiple times, has sex with her, doesn't finish the act, doesn't finish the deed, and then is killed by God for this very reason. Um, I wanted to be very specific about using the word destroyed his seed on the ground because a lot of translations, I don't know what you have in front of you, it might say spilled, but that's not actually the best word to describe what's happening. The the original word comes a lot closer to destroy because the narrator of this passage is wanting to make a point that this guy has no intention of following through with what he is supposed to do. This isn't an accident. This this wasn't an This was intentional. He didn't want to follow through. So why? Why wouldn't Like, why wouldn't he want to follow through on this custom? If you can remember the second point of patriarchy, in that it hurts men as well. So when Eyre died, Onan became the oldest. Onan became the one that was going to get the lion's share of the inheritance, and he got all the power when his brother died. So now that he's having to go to Tamar and create descendants in heir's line, if Tamar had a son with Onan, it would be in heir's line, not in his. And so he would then be out of everything that he had just, the massive windfall of his brother's death would no longer apply to him. So it's kind of a, like, it's a tricky situation. It's kind of one of those dilemmas. I mean, we all can kind of figure out what would probably be more right to do in that situation. But have you ever been in a situation where, like, you know what's right to do, but it doesn't really benefit you? Onan had one of those choices in front of him. And he, I don't, we don't know if he was conflicted, we don't know what his process was, but in the end, he chose his own interests over fulfilling his duty. To his, um, to his like brother and family overall. God isn't pleased with this and kills Onan. But this time, not like Er, who just died because he was wicked, that's the only reason we're given, this time we know why God killed Judah's other son. And it's not for reasons that a lot of people often think. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with the term Onanism. I came across it for the first time while I was researching for this, but it's a term often used to describe masturbation in like a sinful light, that he went to Tamar and he used her and he didn't follow through, so he just used her for pleasure. And so often this passage will be preached like, don't masturbate, kids, and that's that's the sin that they're talking about. But looking at all of these things and looking at the duty that Onan was supposed to perform, This might not actually be the sin of this passage. That might not be why Onan actually died. Maybe it's because he's preventing a widow from care and from the assurances of food and clothing. And he's using her body for pleasure. He's exploiting her. So that might come a little bit closer to what Onan's actual sin was in in this instance. He shows that he doesn't, Onan shows that he doesn't really care about God's plan for his family as well. He's not contributing to the overall, I'm going to bless you to bless everybody plan. So this happens, Onan dies, Tamar is then a widow, again, for the second time. This poor woman is having quite the experience in life. I can't imagine, because you think, like, we're just talking about it casually now, but what if that was you? What if you thought you were going to be cared for and had a husband and then didn't have any kids, and then again you thought you were going to be cared for and you had a husband but then you didn't have any kids, and you weren't cared for and you had no security? What if that was you? That's a rough, like each one of these incidences is trauma after trauma in her life. And then, just to add a little bit of insult to that injury, uh, she's a widow. She has been now sexually exploited for pleasure and nothing has come out of it. And she is still childless. And Judah decides, you know what, instead of caring for her in my household, like is the cultural custom and like I should, I'm gonna send her back to go live with her dad. Shame, shame, shame. She's failed as a woman. She hasn't hasn't been able to produce a son. And she gets sent back away from the household that she was like a part of to her household. He, Judah does not have Tamar's interests at heart at this point of the story. He, um, he sends her away, and here's the one thing he says. I'm going to send you away, and when my youngest son, the diagram that you saw before didn't include the third youngest son. Remember, there's a third son. His name is Shelah, And he says, when Shayla is old enough, I'll give you Shayla. I'll fulfill my duty when he's old enough, but you go home and you wait there until then. Judah has a superstition that it's actually because of Tamar that his kids are dying. He thinks it's her fault. Meanwhile, the narrator of this passage is making it very clear to us, God kills both of Judah's sons because they were wicked. So, the story continues. And this time, there's there's another death in the family. This time, it is Judah's wife. Um... Judah's wife dies, and then after the period of mourning, he goes on and he continues on with his normal life, which is to go shear sheep in another town. That was kind of the season they were in. A lot of people think it was a big festival that happened. There would be a lot of alcohol involved. There would be uh, a lot of maybe less desirable activities happening at the time, and everybody would just go shear their sheep all together. It was this big ordeal that people would do together. And the narrator at this point in time also kind of gives the indication that enough time has passed because Judah's wife has died, there's been a period of mourning, Shelah is now old enough, but instead of reconsidering and giving Shelah to Tamar, he he doesn't, he just ignores it and goes about his normal work duties. Tamar discovers this. She hears that Judah is carrying on with life like normal, that Shelah is old enough and she's being denied the care that she is entitled to. As As a woman, as part of that family with the cultural customs that were meant to protect her, she's not receiving any of that protection. Judah is withholding his son from her at this point and keeping her a childless widow, which is about the lowest of the low that you could be. So this is when Tamar decides to act. Like so many women throughout history, she uses her body to survive in a patriarchal context. And this is a really bold and risky move. This isn't like she's in it for pleasure. This is, this is scary. Everything could go wrong for her. She could not only experience more sexual violence in a, in a really unpleasant encounter, but she could be like, killed for her decision to do this. So what her decision is, I've talked a lot about what, but I haven't told you what it is, her decision is to go and try and see if she can seduce Judah and get pregnant by Judah because Judah is withholding the only other viable means of her getting pregnant, which is the younger son, Shayla. She does nothing to prompt Judah, and the the narration is very clear at this point in the story. All she does is she takes off her widow's clothes, her mourning clothes, and she disguises herself. The text doesn't say she dresses like a prostitute. The text doesn't say she goes and bears it all. She just disguises herself by the side of the road. and Judah passes, and it is he that first labels her a prostitute and assumes that that is why she is there. So maybe Tamar was playing to this man who she knew pretty well by now. She had had enough experiences with Judah to know that maybe he's not going to be as great as everybody thinks he's going to be. And if I do this, if I just disguise myself, maybe he'll actually go for it. So let's talk about this picture for a second. I uh, Googled, because thank you, Google. I Googled a lot of pictures of... uh, of Judah and Tamar, and this is one of the most popular paintings of this encounter. I don't know if you can make out uh, what she's dressed in, and where she's not dressed. This is a really common way to portray Tamar, in both stories and in paintings. Like I said, we, we hear that word prostitute, and it's really hard, even, even myself, it's hard for us to separate what that word means and the type of actions we usually associate with it. Um, and that, and that is what you have in a lot of art and a lot of teaching around, around Tamar. You have her sitting there and she looks really seductive and it looks like she's just throwing herself out there. But all she does, she takes off her widow's clothes, she disguises herself and she sits on the side of the road where she knows that Judah is going to be passing. She creates a scenario in which Judah is likely to act a certain way because she knows his character by this point in time. Judah doesn't recognize her. Can we talk about that for a second? He, she disguises herself, so fair. Maybe her face is covered. Maybe he doesn't recognize her. A little bit of time has passed since she was, did live in his house. But he doesn't even recognize her voice. He has an entire sexual encounter with her and manages to somehow miss the voice of this woman who's been part of his family and been with two of his kids at different times. It's just, it's, an, it's such a fascinating story um judah's speech towards her is really direct it's not like hey do you want to maybe like i don't know about you but do you want to do this thing like that's not the way this goes judah goes over to to her and it's kind of it's kind of awkward in our language but like directly translated is please come i will come into you is the exact phrase upon his first like oh i see her i want her let's do this so payment negotiations are made, because this was Tamar's plan, a little bit less desirable of a plan, but it's still her, like, I need to survive somehow. How am I going to do this? She est- uh, He establishes the price. He says, I will give you a baby goat for your services, and she accepts the offer of that, but she says, I want a guarantee. I want a guarantee that you're going to follow through on this. So she requests his cord, his seal, and his staff, which are are equivalents of credit card, driver's license, and birth certificate. That's <laughs> that is the equivalent. It is documents that only you should have, things that only you should have that will without fail identify Judah as as this person who she is who she's with and will guarantee payment as well because he's gonna want those things back. Because he can't do any type of business transaction, he can't do anything in his world without these pieces. So Judah like, mind-bogglingly agrees to this arrangement. Like, he really wants this encounter to happen. He shows very little care. Again, we're seeing not only, like, broadly, we're getting the picture that Judah is, like, not making the greatest life decisions at this point, but also, again, remembering the greater story of God saying, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless everybody through your family. And that's just off his radar right now. Like, that's, that's nowhere in, in the picture. His family's in jeopardy as well. I just want to add this little note. He has lost his wife, his two oldest sons, who both did not have children. With his wife dead, Judah is not able to have any more children morally or legally. His family's only hope relies on the union of Shayla and Tamar, and he's not letting that happen. And Shayla is not legally allowed to marry anyone else as long as Tamar is alive, because he's supposed to fulfill that duty to her. But none of these factors are important for Judah, and he's like, yeah, whatever. Let's do this. So they do the deed. Tamar's innocence in this entire exchange is actually implied by the narrator, because it says, that, as soon as Judah left, she took off her disguise, she put on her widow's clothes, and she went back home to be with her father. So this is a really important point here, and this is, this is one of the main points today, actually. In no way does Tamar desire to act like a prostitute. She does not want to be known in this way. She's forced into this situation through a series of injustices in her life. So now that we're talking so much about prostitution, I couldn't tell this story without acknowledging the fact that it's still a very real part of our world today, which is deeply disturbing and really, really challenging. Um, And so I want to have a couple notes on prostitution. I'm not going to touch on it for long again, Maybe Brad will have to do a follow-up sermon after this or something. I'm not sure. Sorry, man. (laughs) But I want to talk about prostitution. It is immoral, but why? Is it immoral because there's sex involved? Is that the thing that makes it inherently wrong? Or maybe the wrong of prostitution is that it's taking somebody's human dignity and worth and reducing it to an exchange for money. Maybe that's really at the heart of why this is wrong. Are prostitutes fully liberated women? Sex workers? There's a, there's, there are narratives around that these days. There are people who are advocating for sex work to to be protected like like normal jobs and to have benefits and all of these different things. So are these women fully liberated? Are they really their own people when they participate in this? I'm not convinced because there's a truth about the way the way that they're able to have this profession, it's still a system that's predominantly run by men at the service of men for the profit of men. Prostitutes are objects created and condemned by the same society that benefits from their existence, and it's one of the oldest male-dominated and sexually abusive social structures that we have. Like, it's been, if it's been around since then, and still now, and we can't seem to shake it, there's, there's bigger things at play here. And so hear me on this one, please. I'm not here to heap guilt. The point of the sermon is not man-hating in any way whatsoever. There are incredible, incredible men and women, but men leading the charge on what it looks like to help women exit prostitution and get them the help that they need and take care of their basic needs. This is not meant to be like a let's heap guilt and shame here. But the reality is, is that the the majority, the vast majority, like in the 90% of perpetrators of sexual violence, and people who pay for sex are men. And so we've got a problem still today, just like then. Okay, Prostitution is also really complicated because of intersecting factors. So I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with the work of Defend Dignity. Um, it's a Canadian organization that's doing a lot of research into prostitution these days, and they talk a lot about how it's intersecting factors that increase the likelihood of someone Entering into a life of prostitution, everything from poverty, not having your basic needs met, experiencing abuse, uh, either, either sexual or emotional, or neglect as a child, will greatly increase the chances. Homelessness, um, f- being part of the foster care system, greatly increases your chance of becoming a, of becoming a like a s- sex worker later in life, and so it's this is not one topic that we can just talk about today address all the things and walk away feeling good about it it's not going to happen it's complicated there are a lot of factors at play in this conversation and some view it as a necessary evil like ah uh, it's like there are, there are sociologists and even like early church fathers as i was reading who you know you know think that uh Prostitution fills a vital role in society because it helps people to have jobs. Like they're getting enough for survival by selling their bodies, and then, you know, people can use them to get their sexual urges out so that they can stay pure in their relationships that really matter, like their marriages. There are people who really feel like, like prostitution is part of the, like the economic and good social structure of society because it, it serves a function, it serves a purpose. Mor- morality aside, it's got a purpose. I'm not convinced. In case you can't tell, um, I'm really thankful though that we live in the times that we're in. I think we're in really exciting and interesting times. I think that there is a focus both in the church and outside of the church for justice more than there ever has been before, and so things are changing and notions and concepts around prostitution is changing. While there are people who are advocating for this should be a legitimate job, let's let's go forward with this. There are also a lot of good changes taking place in the form of prosecuting the men who solicit it instead of the women who sell it. So decriminalizing the women and not putting them in jail, which then takes away even more of their resources, and they're just most likely not going to have anything to go back to when they get out. And instead, going after people who who target these women. Um, Well, I'm filling in the blanks for this passage a lot and we're talking a lot about prostitution we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna segue back into the story now but I wanted to touch on it because it's important and it's an issue that's all around us all the time and it's happening in our communities and in our schools and girls as young as 13 are joining and there's there's a lot of different factors at play here and it's a serious thing that we should be spending our time thinking about um but I do want to get back that's not the main point of what we're talking about today um I'm filling in the blanks of this passage regarding culture and the better translations of what the narrator is saying. Many people, again, have read this in the past, and without this information, it's hard to know where Tamar is coming from. So if you want to throw up the next slide, perfect. We're going to do a little uh, headed back into the narrative. We're going to do a little catch-up, so give it a read. I'll take a sip of water. All right, let's catch up with Tamar. She is Eir's wife, Heir dies. She's given to Onan, but not for marriage. She is sexually exploited, Onan dies. She is promised to Shayla, she's sent home. She's ignored by Judah. She decides, you know what, that's enough. I need a plan. Let's make something happen here. And then she gets pregnant in her, like this is something that's wild. Most of the commentaries I looked at were like, we think it's probably pretty indicative. She gets pregnant in one encounter with Judah right away. Like this is telling this is telling us like she's been cheated out of something that should be hers and it's kind of ironic that it, all it takes is one for her to then be pregnant. So catching up to carry on from this point. Judah tries to make good, I guess, to his credit, but I guess he also just wants his stuff back. He tries to make good on his pledge to Tamar and sends a friend with a baby goat, which was the payment, but his friend can't find the prostitute. He goes to the town and and says, hey, where's the prostitute? I want to make payment, and nobody knows anything of what he's talking about. So when friend goes back to Judah and reports back to Judah, he's like, Okay, I don't get my stuff back, but now somebody else has my stuff, but my reputation is more important than making this right. Like, I'm just gonna leave it. I don't I don't want to run the risk of creating big kerfuffle and having a scandal, and all my stuff is out there. Like I'm just gonna leave it. And he feels like he's done his part to resolve the situation he tried to pay. That's all he could do. Shortly after that, Judah finds out about Tamar's pregnancy upon which he assumes the role of the deciding judge in her life, and he prescribes her the harshest sentence of death by burning." Uh, this is incredibly cruel, even for that time. That was not the appropriate punishment to go along with Tamar's actions. That punishment was reserved for two specific instances. Another thing is that if there was ever a woman who got pregnant or in, like, in the similar situation to Tamar's where she was pledged to another person, Sheila, even though she wasn't fulfilling it on it, um, her and the man who impregnated her would be stoned to death. That was to be the appropriate punishment for what happened here. But instead, Judah bypasses all of that and really showing his double standard like blatantly clearly. is like, kill her with fire! Normally, the only people who would undergo that type of punishment were a priest's daughter who act like a prostitute, so specifically just a priest's daughter. Or... Um, if a man took both a woman and the woman's mother and had sexual relations with them, then they would be burned. I'm like, we're getting into the real nitty gritty of the Old Testament. When Brad told me he wanted me to preach on Tamar, I was like, Are you serious? <laughs> like, who talks about Tamar in church? This is—I mean, this is great, but this is this is nitty gritty, man. Okay, so so now we've talked about who deserves death by burning. Um, and it's not Tamar. And further, for her to be considered an adulteress in the first place, she must either be heir's widow or Shelah's future wife, which she has been denied by Judah, right? So she's technically not even an adulteress because she's not even being allowed to live into the roles that she should have at this point. So in response to Judah's fly off the handle, let's kill her. She sends the evidence. She sends his personal documentation. And states, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. Now, here we have a little bit of credit to give to Judah. To his credit, he admits his parenthood when he's presented with his personal documents, because they couldn't, there's no way. You can't lie your way around that one. You can't be like, oh, I didn't notice my personal things were gone. Like, they're yours. He admits parenthood. And then comes the admission that is so rare in scripture, so very rare in the history of the church, and even sometimes in our own families, Judah says, she is more right than I. Then all of a sudden, we're stuck in this situation where we're like, what the heck? How is Tamar more right than Judah. She did something that was kind of icky as well. And what do we do? What, do? what do you do with that? She is more right than I. So Judah, son of Israel, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, Judah, whose tribe will gain ascendance to the royal throne of David and eventually lead to Jesus, says she is more right than I. Judah, the insider, has been bested by Tamar, the outsider. Which again, for us, no big deal. For anybody who reads the story is like, what? This doesn't make sense. So what do we do with a story like this? If we look at it morally, you could make the argument that Tamar is just as much in the wrong as Judah is. That, you know, she has done something that's a little bit less desirable. None of us would really want to be her or make that choice. And you could think, you know, maybe sex outside of marriage or something would make her, equally as guilty as you in this situation. But if you look at it theologically, which is kind of the entire bent of the Old Testament, it's all telling us stories about God and how we're supposed to relate to God and how we're supposed to live in right relationship with God, aka theology. How do we bridge the, the gap between who God is and our lived experience on earth and everything in between and all of our questions and our queries and our processes, all of that is the theology we're doing. So if we look at this theologically, Tamar's willingness to go beyond social convention and even to risk her life results in creating conditions where her own future, Judah's future, and the future of Israel leading to Jesus fit providentially into God's plan for getting the entire world blessed. Like it's her that has taken this situation and been like, you know what? They're not following through. Let's make this thing happen. So Tamar does what she feels she needs to do to secure her own, and by extension, Judah's future. She does more for the future of God's people than Judah does. And so whether she intended to do that or not, whether it was her plan to say, I'm going to save the future of Israel, I somehow doubt it. I somehow feel like she was probably acting from a place of like, I need my needs met. And desperate people do desperate things. And I think Tamar shows us one of those Things, but the, her, the desperate thing she chose to do was incredibly risky. Again, very close to losing her life on this one. Another interesting thing about this is so, Judah, if you can remember from before, with the story of Joseph, he arranges his brother to be sold into slavery in Egypt. Later on, after this chapter, Judah ends up back in Egypt when there's a massive famine. And he is going to implore his brother, Joseph, who is the Pharaoh's like, right-hand man over everything in Egypt, for food. And the Pharaoh is, is testing them and says, bring us your younger brother, or let your younger brother stay with me, and you all go home, and we'll see what happens. And Judah acts like a different man at this point. He's like, nope, I will stay in his place. He takes the place of someone else. There's a shift that's happened in Judah as a result of Tamar's actions in his life. He has a moment where he's like, you know what, I can't keep living like this. I need to start caring a little different." She was right, I was wrong, and I need to do things differently. And so we see from this chapter onward, Judah is a much more, like he takes responsibility for his role in Israel's future. And he decides to live a different way as a result of this encounter that he's had with Tamar and this family craziness. So, did you know that there was a story like this in the Bible? Had you heard about it before this morning? Had you read it? There's going to be some other good ones in the weeks to come. You can see in your little prayer, uh, the prayer bulletin that they were talking about earlier. There's the different speakers and different women that they're speaking on. And you you guys are in for a treat. I'm very excited for your sermon series. But what do you do with a story like this? Like, did you know that in the depths of these texts, which all assume patriarchy, they assume that men are better than women in almost every instance, that there's this little story of a woman who, when she was cast off and was no longer useful to the men in her life, she decides to rise up and do something about it. And she becomes the predecessor to royalty. Tamar shows how playing the role of trickster to subvert the prevailing oppressive structures is necessary sometimes to force those who are in a position of power and privilege to do the justice that they need to do, to take care of the people that they need to take care of in their life. Like the real sin, again, like we talked about, is this idea of like, screw you, I'm going to protect me. And Judah reaches this point where he can't do that anymore, and Tamar is more right than Judah. So Tamar is also celebrated in Scripture. Like, this isn't some skeleton in the closet, because it would be really easy to be like, ugh, it's kind of icky. Well, it was a good story. It kind of kept Israel on track, but we're not going to talk about it much anymore. That would be the easy way and if we're honest with ourselves. Maybe it's sometimes easier for us to keep our little skeleton things in the closet than throwing them out there. I don't know about you all, but that's the real problem for me. But she is not like that. She she is celebrated for her courage in the rest of Scripture, and she shows up in multiple different places. She is publicly named in a beautiful wedding blessing at Ruth and Boaz's marriage. Both King David and his son Absalom name their daughters Tamar. And Matthew, the gospel writer, includes her in the genealogy of Jesus. Because if you'll remember, if she hadn't taken action, Judah's family would have ended there. The line that included Jesse and King David and Jesus would have ended back here in Genesis 38. Where would the rest of our Bible be? (laughs) Matthew names Tamar to remind us that there's a line of women who keep asking us to define what is righteous, what is just, and that we need to be doing the same thing today. We can't write her off. That's that's where we come to with this. We cannot just ignore the story, write her off, leave it alone because it's a little bit sexual and uncomfortable for us. But we also can't write off Judah, remember? Because we've seen an incredible change in his character at this point. We've seen him go pre-Tamar to this family scandal disastrousness that he caused to post-Tamar, where he starts to take responsibility for Who he is, his identity as part of this family that God has called to be a blessing. So, this is where, if the worship team wants to come back up and get ready to head into your next set, you can do that. I'm just going to wrap up with a couple questions and a couple last thoughts. When I first read through this story, when Brad was like, Yeah, can you do Genesis chapter 38 and talk about Tamar? I read it. I was like, All right, it's going to be fun. But I read it, and I actually identified with the character of Judah, not Tamar. Because I'm an insider. I've been a Christian my whole life. I've always been on the in. I can be selfish. I can want to seek the best outcomes for myself before taking care of others. I have the tendency to write people off in my life. This is not great. This is I'm getting real open with you here. But when I don't think somebody is good enough to speak into my life, I'll like I'll hear them, I'll listen to them, but I won't hear them, right? I'll hear what they have to say and then I'll be like, I don't really feel like applying that. Or who are they? They don't know me well enough. Or no, God's surely not using them to speak to me. I'm incredibly privileged because I've never experienced sexual violence, and I've never experienced a lack of food or water or shelter. I've always had everything I've needed in my life, and I've never been truly desperate. And I want to end today by asking you who you identify with in this story. And we're going to have a couple minutes of of reflection before we go back into the, the songs. Just a couple minutes of quiet reflection. I want to ask you, are you more like Judah, like I just described? Maybe a little bit less personally, so maybe in other areas. But are you an insider, a a Christian? You're part of the promised people. Do you enjoy privilege in this culture? You don't struggle for your survival? Are you maybe stuck with a past? Because you got to think that maybe some of the reasons Judah made some of his wacko decisions was because he was riddled with guilt for what he did to his brother and selling him into slavery. That's, that's a sort of trauma in and of itself. That doesn't just leave you alone. That's the type of thing that can, can haunt your dreams. Is there someone that you are writing off because they're not somebody that you would typically listen to or associate with or you think, ah, God's not speaking to me through them? So do you identify with Judah this morning? Or do you identify with Tamar? Are you a little bit of an outsider? You feel like you don't belong in your community. You've maybe been used by other people with no regard for you or the effect that it's that it could have on your life. Um, have you been sexually abused and you're needing vindication? Are you being written off by other people because of like a factor in life in your life that you really can't control? Or are you on the outside? Are you marginalized? Are you being called this morning? to an act of risky courage like Tamar to stand up for yourself, to advocate or to seek help in the w- and get people around you. No, hear me, I'm not trying to say that if you're coming from a really, really rough place, all you need to do is pull up your bootstraps. That's not the case. But there are connections here in this church and with the pastoral team that can help you walk alongside to help you take some risks and act with courage in different areas of your life. Or are you if you're Judah are you being called this morning to openness and repentance and to looking a little bit wider and looking outside your insider circles and seeing the ways in which you might need to repent and look after the interests of others before you look after your own so that's that's where I want to leave it this morning I want to leave us we're going to sit here in silence for just a just a couple minutes not too terribly long and then we'll finish with the normal worship response but I want to know are you being prompted this morning toward risk or repentance